0: Good morning, thank you all for being here, and welcome to a new year of human rights programming at UVA. I know know what you're thinking. February is almost over, spring break is around the corner, and there's this guy still throwing out Happy New Year's wishes. Fair point, but you might not know that this weekend, this very weekend, the Tibetan community is celebrating Losar, a festival that marks the first day of the lunisolar Tibetan calendar. So in spirit of embracing multiculturalism, the UEA human rights program is kicking off its year, ignoring the Gregorian calendar and partially the academic calendar. So Dr. Sangai, I apologize for the last minute request, but you will have to tell us more about the Losar celebrations. Our human rights program at the University of Virginia School of Law is proud of its mission to intentionally bridge the worlds of research, policy, and human rights practice while maintaining a focus on rigorous scholarly inquiry. At the top of our interests is to increase our knowledge on how scholars, activists, governments, movements, and, other actors, and and others actors understand, conceptualize, advocate for, critique, or even reject or ignore human rights. We want to expose our community to the tensions, contradictions, contingencies, roads not taken, and dilemmas that lie at the heart of the human rights enterprise. That's why we seek to bring to campus people that, from different perspectives and backgrounds, reflect not only on philosophical questions, such as, what are human rights? What should they be? But also on other questions shaped by human rights practice, such as, what do human rights do? Why do people use human rights? Why do communities use them instead of of using other political or moral frameworks? And what are the effects, implications, and drawbacks of relying on human rights in political struggles? And we couldn't think of a better person to speak to these questions than our distinguished keynote speaker, Dr. Lobsang Sangai. He has excelled in both worlds. The field of academic thinking and the realm of, of practice. Dr. Sanghai was born and reared in a Tibetan settlement in northeast India. He attended schooling at the Central School for Tibetans and completed his BA with honors and LLB degrees from Delhi University. In 1995, he won the Fulbright Scholarship to pursue postgraduate studies at Harvard University, or our own professor for Tsuri calls it the Virginia of the Northeast. In 2004, he became the first ever Tibetan to receive an SJD degree from the Virginia of the North for his PhD dissertation, Democracy in Distress. Is exile polity a remedy, a case study of Tibet's government in exile. Dr. Sanghai is a recipient of the Young K Kim Prize, and in 2005, he was appointed as a research fellow and promoted to senior fellow till early 2011 at Harvard University. Dr. Sanghai is an expert on international human rights law, democratic constitutionalism, and conflict resolution. He has spoken at numerous seminars around the world. He has organized several major conferences among Chinese, Tibetans, Indians, and Western scholars on China and Tibet, including two unprecedented meetings between His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and Chinese scholars in 2003 and 2009, both at Harvard University. But he promises that the next one will be hosted here at UVA. He has combined that impressive academic trajectory with tenacious academic activism and different political appointments. In 1992, he was elected as the youngest executive member of the Tibetan Youth Congress, Centrex. In 2007, he was selected as one of the 24 young leaders of Asia by the Asia Society and a delegate to the World Justice Forum in Vienna, Austria, where top legal experts and judges from around the world congregated. In 2011, in an unprecedented and competitive democratic election in the Tibetan diaspora, he was elected to the post of Sikyong, the democratically elected leader of the Tibetan people and political successor to His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. In May 2016, Dr. Sanghai was re-elected as the Sikyong, or the president, for the second consecutive term. He also continues to travel extensively around the world for speaking engagements and leads high-level diplomatic engagements and political advocacy for Tibet seeking to keep Tibet not only in the radar, but also atop the global political discourse and agenda. Dr. Senghai, we are very grateful for your presence among us today. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming our keynote speaker, Dr. Lobsang Sanghai.
1: Thank you very much for reading the propaganda of <laughs> Tibetan administration about my bio. You took so much time and you know, read so diligently. It's sometimes quite embarrassing. Uh, but uh, as you said, you know, our New Year, or Losar, uh, is you know beginning from Monday. Obviously, Monday is a new day. You know. And Losar means New Year, which means there has to be a change of something, right? So it's a spring term, so Losar means when New Year happens, we believe that spring is coming. So if you go by calendar, Tibetan Losar actually reflects new, something new, because if it's January 1st, January 2nd is as cold as January, isn't it, December 31st, you know? So for us, New Year means springtime, and it's a privilege and honored uh, to be invited here to be the uh, keynote speaker for the spring term, and the weather looks like spring. Looks like spring. Misleading, it's minus one, actually. But, uh, you know, and I just came uh, from, three days ago I was uh, at Innsbruck Law School uh, in Australia, so I was uh, giving a talk. Then yesterday, and the day before, I was in Washington D.C. Um, lobbying the U.S. Senate and Congress uh, to pass Tibetan Policy and Support Act, which is uh, you know a major bill uh, on Tibet. Now, what you read in news media, and then this is much talked about also in Europe. America is divided, Congress is divided, impeachment, all these things are going on. Amidst all these political issues, three weeks ago, Tibetan Policy and Support Act was passed with 392 votes in the U.S. House. So out of 435, we got 392 votes, which means Almost 93 percent of House members, both Democrat, Republican, Independent, Socialists, all voted for the bill. So there is consensus in Washington D.C. that is on Tibet issue. Now we have to pass in the U.S. Senate, and uh, that's why you know I was there to lobby. And our Office of Tibet, Representative Udu is here. Our staff members are here. We are doing the best we can to get the Senate pass the bill before. June of this year before the presidential primary in election hits up and then everybody forgets almost all the issues including Tibet that's our main worry. With your prayer and support and lobbying if you can call your senators in your respective you know states uh, it will go a long way so I'm trying to pitch also my Tibetan policy act. Again, It is my uh, privilege to be here second time to Virginia Law School, and this is a good experience because I could see a lot of students here and uh, many from Asia as well, and this is normally not the experience I get when I travel to other parts of the world. For example, two years ago I was speaking at Stellenbosch Law School in Cape Town, and Chinese Embassy issued a press release, criticizing my visit and essentially saying that I don't know anything about Tibet because I have never been to Tibet myself. But they omit the fact that the Chinese government doesn't allow me to go to Tibet. Then they allege that I have never been to Tibet so I don't know about Tibet. But I think I know a little better than the Chinese ambassador in South Africa about Tibet. But worse than that, more than 100 Migrant workers were hired, and they stormed the campus of Stellenbosch Law School. They stormed the auditorium. They were on stage with big pamphlets, telling me to get out, and I couldn't enter the room, main room. Fortunately, the law school had arranged an alternative room where I had to speak. It was very tense. There were security guards and, you know, uh, very tense. Not to me, but to the organizers and the rest. And the dean was saying, you know, well, uh, and I told the dean, I said, the fact that you organize the talk, the fact that I'm here itself is enough. Now, we don't have to go through the talk if you think there are security issues, right? And uh, she was like, oh, how come you're so calm, you know? We are a bit tense with all these 100 migrant workers and 30 or 40 Chinese uh, people, you know, storming the campus. And I said, I'm used to it. Uh, but we went ahead with the talk. And afterwards, when I finished the talk, as I came out of the campus, came out of the auditorium, I could see from the window, there were 30 or 40 Chinese shouting slogans, you know, essentially in Chinese, telling me to get out. So as the door opened, I could see many with their cameras on, so all I could think of and did was give them a V sign, victory sign. They were shouting at me, victory, and... uh, I meant it, actually. It's a victory for freedom of speech because I could speak at the law school. They could protest. Maybe they tried to protest in China, very unlikely, and I tried to speak about Tibet in China, very unlikely, so it's a victory of speech for them too. It's a celebration of freedom of speech. Why I say this is, you know, China poses a big challenge as far as freedom of speech is concerned or human rights is concerned. Just a few days ago, the Chinese government expelled three journalists of Wall Street Journal, unprecedented. Now why this is connected is not many people know what is going on in Tibet. For example, how many of you know that Freedom House comes out with Freedom Index every year? For four years in a row, Tibet was listed as the second least free region in the whole world after Syria. Now we all know about Syria, at least most of us, but how many of you know that Tibet is the second least free region in the whole world? Not many. Why? Reporters Without Borders, based on interviews of journalists in Beijing, says that for journalists to go to Tibet is more difficult than to go to North Korea. That's why you don't know the true situation in Tibet because journalists are not allowed to go to Tibet. In fact, a few months ago, there is a journalist, the Washington Post, I know him. He did Facebook Live from Hassa and said, for journalists, it's very difficult to get access to Tibet compared to North Korea. But he was allowed to do Facebook Live from Lhasa. And uh, as he was speaking, you know, but we're given this tour and we are told all these good things that the Chinese government is doing. And he, he used the word propaganda. And the Chinese foreign minister, Minder, came, don't say propaganda, you know, just say alternative information or something like that. Because journalists are not allowed, because students are not allowed, because researchers are not allowed, even diplomats are not allowed, to go to Tibet. That's why you don't know. 154 Tibetans have committed self-immolations. They have burned themselves. One in 2009 and the rest of them since 2011. How many of you know that 154 Tibetans burned themselves? Now there were few self-immolations in, you know, uh, Middle East countries. Uh, if you go back in history, in Czech Republic and Vietnam during Vietnam War, a Vietnamese monk self-immolated. They became headline news around the world and rallied activists, peace supporters, human rights supporters, and change history. But in Tibet, 154. Now the question is, why are they burning themselves? Some would turn it around, and I remember Chinese uh, embassy, uh, you know, some official propaganda saying that, well, self-immolation is a very cruel death, is violence. How can Tibetans do that? Blaming the victim for committing self-immolation. But the genesis of self-immolation lies with, if you study protests in Tibet, If two or three Tibetans organises or participate in peaceful protests in the streets of Lhasa or you name any town, they will be immediately arrested. They will be sent to prison. They will be tortured and often disappear. And all this, there are so many cases reported by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and others. Not just that. There's a systematic, in a way, ruthless way of you know, misreading prisoners or political prisoners. You get arrested, now you're sentenced, and you're imprisoned three or four or five hundred kilometers away. And you, what happens is that now you are separated from your family members. Let's say the father participates in a protest. Father is sentenced, sent away five hundred kilometers in prison. Now the wife or the mother has to, whatever savings they have, take the money, take clothes, take food, and go meet the husband. Now, in prison, in Tibet, they don't have visitation rights. You have to wait for one day or one week or two weeks to meet your husband. And afterwards, when you meet, you hand over whatever clothes and food you have. But then, after three or four or five years of doing this, what happens is the family goes bankrupt, whatever savings they have. Children are neglected. They don't go to school. And after some time, the whole family suffers. And if father is released, he or she, uh, father, he, will be in poor health, and often has to be hospitalized, if they have not disappeared. Now since 2008, nationwide protests, this was the pattern. This is how political prisoners were treated. Then the activists, the protesters in Tibet concluded that if I were to protest, not only I suffer, my family suffer, my children suffer, even the community will suffer. Rather, if I burn myself and die quickly, then I don't have to be imprisoned for several years and get tortured. And at least I saved my wife and children. So the genesis of self-immolation is because of the systematic imprisonment, torture of Tibetan political prisoners. I remember meeting Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland, who was human rights commissioner. And she went to Tibet. What she did, you know, she distributed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, copies of Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because she knew and she was told that if you are caught with a copy of Universal Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you could go to prison, definitely you'll be in trouble. So she said she defied the restriction and distributed herself. But then I asked her, do you know what happened to those people who you actually distributed, right? They could be in trouble. Now this is a former president of Ireland, human rights commissioner, who hardly get any access in the last two human rights commissioners are not allowed to go to Tibet. They were not allowed. She did. Even to have a copy of Universal Declaration of Human Rights could land you in trouble. If you distribute that, if you recite some provisions, you get arrested, you get tortured, and you go to jail. Now, as I said, you know, Chinese government is a challenge um, as far as human rights is concerned. As we speak, Chinese government is trying to restructure United Nations, redefine human rights. They have already passed two resolutions at the UN. Human Rights Council, redefining human rights, supported by majority of countries in the world. And if that becomes a statute, then human rights is. Redefined. Then development precedes democracy, food precedes freedom. So with that definition if Tibetans are to go to the Human Rights Council or anyone, any victim, to say my human rights, political rights or religious freedom is denied, then the question will be are you getting enough food or do you have enough shelter? Then the Chinese government has fulfilled their human rights obligations, then they have not necessarily or technically violated human rights. This is the effort. So it's a challenge. So hence the human rights issue of Tibet is not simply of six million Tibetans, but it's for it, you know, it has implications for the rest of the world. So that's why the Tibet case is very important for us to know so that you will understand how best to deal with the Chinese government. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. Some of you might think that the Tibetan activists in Tibet could be, you know, just an activist, a nobody, you know, who is, you know, morally or spiritually oriented and they go to the streets and just shout slogans and participate. No. Tashi Wongchuk, uh, entrepreneur, and uh, Jack Ma's Alib- Alibaba company, you know, projected him as one of the successful entrepreneurs in their promotional ad. And New York Times featured him and followed him and did a short documentary because Tashi Wangchuk is a bilingual education advocate in Tibet. Because the Chinese constitution of 1982 and Minority Nationality Act of 1984 clearly says Minorities' language should be not only used but should be encouraged. This is exactly the provision of the Chinese constitution. Now Dai is saying this is what it says: not only Tibetan language should be used but should be encouraged, and based on which bilingual education is allowed. And he approaches the local authorities and says, This is my constitutional and legal right as a minority, to have the curriculum in schools taught in Tibetan language as well. Yes, you teach in Chinese, but also in Tibetan language. The local authorities reject him, and he goes to Beijing. All these are documented by New York Times, very high-profile case. And in 2015, he was detained. Then after a few months, he was sentenced for five years in prison. Now, Jack Ma's Alibaba portrays him as a successful entrepreneur, a high profile Tibetan, educated. And he was just following the Chinese constitution and Chinese laws and saying, These are my rights provided by and clearly stated in the law. And he's in prison for five years. And he said so. It's very prophetic. He says, If I don't succeed, then as far as Tibet issue is concerned, it can't be solved through law. And he failed. He's in prison. So now law is not a solution as far as Tibet is concerned. Not to disappoint all the law students here. You all think law is the solution, you know. In the case of Tibet, it seems not. And there's another person by the name of Karma Samdup, rich guy philanthropists, environmentalists, he was into, you know, a preserving, you know, endangered species. And it so happened that his brother, someone alleged, a Chinese person was, you know, engaged in illegal hunting. And he received national awards. Now where is he? Sentenced for 15 years for making a case that endangered species should not be killed, should not be hunted. And uh, there's a case of uh, Dojetashi, very rich Tibetan guy. Uh, in 1990s, he was multi-millionaire. His property was hundreds of million dollars uh, of you know uh, business, especially Yak Hotel. So what I'm trying to project is those Tibetans who, who make it through the system become entrepreneur, you know, become environmentalists and become philanthropists, and this guy a successful businessman. Again, he was a member of, you know, uh, what they call uh, National Political Consultative Conference, a high-ranking member. Again, very successful. Perhaps he was too successful, and afterwards he was alleged to have contributed A donation to exile entity and sentence. So these are no, you know, I mean, what can I say? I can't say nobody activist, but you know, person of standing. And he died. So now, law says, and China claims nowadays become a champion as far as climate change and global warming is concerned. They claim to lead the world on climate change. But then Tibetan environmental activists were sentenced, sent to prison, and died. And 154 Tibetans, of this, many are environmentalists, many are cultural activists, many are spiritual activists, many are language activists. They all are saying the same thing before they die, They're saying, I want our culture, our identity is under threat and I'm dying, I'm burning myself. Please rest with the world. Listen to us. Listen to our suffering. But many of you don't know, I don't blame you, mainly because when the Chinese government is expelling three journalists of Wall Street Journal, Banning journalists from going to Tibet, researchers and students from going to Tibet, how will the rest of the world know? So that's why my presence here, even though two days before New Year, I came here willingly, because this is our assertion or demonstration of freedom of speech in practice. It is a human rights program. Even the human rights programs are nowadays hesitant to have lectures in Tibet. Why I say this is Estellen Bosch Law School, I went to South Africa next year. Next year, I could not even go to the campus. The dean and the professor said, well, too much pressure from the higher up. We can't hold talk. And I gave an interview to a South African uh, national radio program. The producer, for some reason, had watched many of my interviews on YouTube. And as soon as he uh, heard my name, he really wanted to, you know, interview me. And he got this journalist and interviewed for half an hour. And even the journalist became an instant convert. I'm I'm not trying to show off. Okay, This is not a Tibetan way of doing it. But, you know, he liked what I said. I said, if South Africa can do it, so can Tibet. He said, you know, I like this. Tomorrow I'm going to feature it every hour before the radio program. And it was supposed to broadcast at 9.30, 8.45. We got a call. Saying someone from high up called and said, hold on to that interview, and never saw the daylight. It's been two plus years. They did not broadcast my interview. <coughs> this is in South Africa. And I was in University of Toronto, I think a year or a half ago. 50 or 60 Chinese students came and protested with national flag and singing national anthem outside. Then I had to give a talk inside. I gave, and afterwards I said, you know, some of the students of three Tibet were organizing it, you know. And they were, they were very angry because Tibetans, right, they were very angry. And what do we do, what do we do? I said, no, invite them in. And 20 or so came in, and after an hour or 15 minutes of talk, yeah, some of them were, you know, clapping. Because Tibetans, what we pursue under the leadership of the Dalai Lama, is nonviolence. And we want to solve the issue through dialogue with the Chinese government, with the Chinese counterpart. And what we seek is genuine autonomy for the Tibetan people within the framework of the Chinese constitution. Not outside of the Chinese constitution, within the framework of the Chinese constitution. Now if I go back a little as far as history is concerned, if you look at the ethnic map of China, or map of China, Han Chinese inhabited area is only 40% of China's territory, present China's territory. 60% of China actually is inhabited by Tibetans, Uyghurs, Mongolians, Manchus, and so on and so forth, 55 minorities, so called 55 minorities. So now you understand why, China, or why PLA or the People's Liberation Army invaded Tibet. Because Tibet is 2.5 million. Approximately square kilometers of land, which is, in American context, is as big as Texas and California combined. If you think we are from a small place, no. Texas and California combined. That big land. And Chinese government sometimes say that Tibet is one-fourth of China. Definitely it's around one-fifth of China. That big a territory. So why Tibet was invaded and occupied? because of huge territory. China has 1.3, now 4 billion people. Tibet has only 6 million, but territory is 2.5 million square kilometers of land and rich in minerals. Don't think that, you know, sometimes they show Tibet as this barren land. Not so, 123 different kinds of minerals are there. Uranium, gold, borax, you name it, copper. Second largest mining in whole of China is in Tibet. Now, if you are using any of these Chinese-made gadgets, you will find lithium battery. Some estimate that 70% of the lithium in China comes from Tibet. So sometimes you might wonder why Chinese-made you know, gadgets are cheap, because Tibetans don't get paid for the Tibetan lithium. The extraction of lithium is very complicated. You have to use chemicals. So in the process, you you pollute Tibetan soil, pollute Tibetan air, pollute Tibetan water. Tibetans don't get paid. And that's what you you find in your gadgets if it's made in China. 90% of rare earth, rare earth is very important as far as any kind of high-tech gadgets, even satellite and missiles they use in rare, rare earth. Ninety percent of the rare earth, the whole world is in Inner Mongolia. So if an American company wants to buy rare earth from China, you have to pay 10 times the price. If Chinese company wants to buy rare earth, they get subsidies. They just pay one-tenth of the price. That's why Chinese products are cheap and Mongolians don't get much you know, don't get paid much for the rare earth. Now I'll touch on I can see a beautiful landscape of Virginia, I'm assuming yeah. Tibet is also, as far as environment is concerned, very important. After Antarctica and Arctic, Tibet has the third highest or the largest reserve of ice or snow. And more importantly, Antarctic and Arctic, when ice melts, it goes to ocean the water. When the Tibetan glaciers and snow melt, it forms streams and rivers. So 10 major rivers of Asia flow from Tibet. How many of you know that? China, Yellow River, cradle of Chinese civilization starts in Tibet. So the source of China or Chinese civilization belongs to us. Yangtze River flows from Tibet. Yellow River, famous in Chinese history. And uh, as far as Brahmaputra river, if you are from India or you know, ASEAN countries, Assam, you know that. And uh, from the uh, Irrawaddy river. And if you are from India, Satlash River, which flows from Tibet through Kashmir to Pakistan, and more importantly, Indus River. Starts from Tibet, through Kashmir to Pakistan. Why I say this is the term India comes from Indus River. And 40% of Indus River, or the water, is a direct glacier melt of Tibet, which means we have 40% ownership over Indus river, or Indus term, hence 40% of term, India, we have some claim over it, too, you know. So Tibet is very rich in minerals and rivers. Now, some environmentalists, even Quebec or California, have stated that the climate change, whether winter is warm or cold in Canada, is dependent on the jet stream over Tibetan plateau. So I'm going to Ottawa, and I could see the weather forecast is, it's all minus, it's very cold. So, just stream over Tibet somehow influenced the climate in, uh, not, uh, in, in Canada. This is a Canadian environmentalist saying. So it's that important. Now, the challenge is, because as you said, you know, Harvard Law School is northern Virginia. Virginia of the Northeast,, yeah, but I think I am from the northernmost territory of the world, right? Tibet is called the Roof of the world, you know. And the, as far as you know, the global warming and climate change is concerned, because of rapid industrialization of Tibet, as I mentioned, Tibet is rich in minerals. It's being exploited. In Tibetan rivers in Tibet, you will find not just one or two, 10, 20 dams to generate hydropower. make quick money. And not many of them are generically or scientifically sound. It's a challenge. And because of the urbanization, a lot of Chinese are moving in to Tibetan plateau. And now you have to build roads and houses and things like that. So it generates heat. Now if there's one degree increase in the rest of the world, there's two degrees increase on the Tibetan plateau, given the sensitivity, given the delicate nature of the Himalayan region. Now what is happening is that The ice or the snow on the Tibetan Plateau is melting very fast. In the last 50 years, 50% of Tibetan glaciers and ice have melted and disappeared. Now NASA predicts the forecast that by 2070, another 50% of Tibetan glacier and snow will melt and disappear. Then what happens is that, that Tibet actually becomes barren. Then, then the Tibetan Plateau will be the roof of the world, the northernmost, becomes very warm and hot. Why it's dangerous is 70% of Tibetan Plateau is permafrost, frozen earth. Now, once frozen earth started thawing, underneath the Tibetan Plateau is 10 million tons of carbon dioxide. So once the Tibetan Plateau thaws, carbon dioxide will be leaked, and it's already leaking, actually, in some places. Then the global warming as we know it will be very, very different and dangerous. Now worse is equal amount of methane is underneath the Tibetan Plateau. And methane is 28 times more dangerous than carbon dioxide. So if you want to study climate change and global warming, you have to study Tibetan plateau, And this is being said by environmentalists and scientists. Now the UN experts on climate change and global warming, again, I'm giving you an example, freedom of speech. They have done thousands of pages of research on climate change and global warming, and they don't mention Tibet and these are UN sanctioned scientists, they're scared to mention Tibet. They mention Himalaya. They mention Hindu Kush region, things like that. Even scientists are avoiding mentioning Tibet in their report. That's why some of the scientists in California, others have said, if you want to understand global warming, climate change, without understanding the Tibetan Plateau, which is a huge tract of land, it's not complete. So even UN scientists, they practice self-censorship when it comes to climate change. So that's why I said, as far as is concerned, they pose a big challenge as far as human rights and freedom of speech is concerned. So today I'm here, two days before the new year, to celebrate and participate in freedom of speech. And University of Virginia Law School and Professor Sanchez and his team has given me this opportunity. So I feel very grateful and honored. So thank you very much for your time and I'm happy to take questions.